The song we have just sung speaks boldly of the confidence that we have uh, in salvation, not in ourselves, uh, but in God's power, in God's electing grace, in God's gracious call, in God's power to send his word to be victorious. And the song is a plea. Uh, a confident plea for God to continue to work. And I pray that that confidence and that plea would be ours this morning. Several years ago, uh, as I attended a uh, pastor's conference uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the pastors began his message with a statement that caught my attention. And he said, the greatest hindrance to the gospel, the greatest hindrance to the gospel is the Christian's lack of confidence in the gospel itself. The greatest hindrance to the gospel is the Christian's lack of confidence in the gospel itself. Is it surprising that a message about confidence in the only true gospel uh, would be given in the New Testament not to non-believers but to believers in the churches. That's what we're going to see this morning in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 1, verse one uh, verses 11 through 24. Is it indeed possible that even churches may get weaned off of confidence in the only true gospel? I encourage you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through 24. And you may find this passage in the Pew Bibles on page number 972. And as you turn there, let me just suggest some ways. How is it possible for churches, for Christians, to get weaned off of the confidence in the only true gospel. How does that happen? Well, let me suggest a few potential ways. It happens when churches or church leaders begin thinking that we need something else other than the gospel to be at the center of what we are doing as a church. That somehow in order to be relevant or uh, meaningful to our society, we need something else other than the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. It happens when churches or leaders uh, think of various reasons for our existence as an entity, as a church, other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's tons of problems there are tons of ways in which we see brokenness in our world, in our society. There's brokenness happening at the social level. There's brokenness happening at the moral level. There's brokenness happening at the political level. There's brokenness happening around us at the economic level. There's brokenness around us over and over and over and over again. Should we as a church think about addressing the issues of brokenness that are around us? Absolutely. But should we address them as if our main existence as a church is being about those 
broken issues. And somehow when we so focus on them, we sidetrack the gospel or think that our existence as a church is about dealing with those broken issues as if they are the center of why we exist as a church. Oh, friends, it is easy to allow even the brokenness around us, the brokenness of our society, of our culture, of our world, to become the center of why we exist. And when we do so, we get sidetracked and get weaned off as if we think the solutions that we bring, the, the strategies that we come up around and develop are the reason why we exist. And what happens in those times of thinking, of getting sidetracked in other dimensions, other needs, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ loses its center in the life of the church. This morning, we're going to look at a, at, at a number of churches in the Galatian region that were sidetracked from the gospel. And, and the Apostle Paul wants to build or rebuild, regain in these churches confidence in the one true gospel. So the message this morning is entitled, Confidence in the Only True Gospel. Galatians 1, 11 through 24. Here's God's word for us. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was ad advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace. And we are dependent on your spirit, even in the act of hearing your word. So, Father, would you work among us this morning? I pray for your grace in the proclamation of this word, and I pray for your grace in the hearing of this word, for the, for the glory of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. 
the main, the main single point of the message this morning is grow in confidence in the only true gospel. Grow in confidence in the only true gospel. And this morning we will see three reasons that Paul gives us why we can and why we must grow in confidence in the only true gospel. And reason number one is because a true gospel is from God. Because a true gospel is from God. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. The Apostle Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, why did the Apostle Paul need to clarify to these churches that the gospel he preached to them was not man's gospel? Uh, think with me for a moment. Was that not clearly understood? Was not that clearly known to these churches? Uh, remember that the Apostle Paul confronted the Galatian churches uh, for their foolishness in going after another gospel, after another so-called good news of salvation. Uh, we, we read about that in verses 5 and 6. And in verses 7, the Apostle Paul clarified that actually there is no other gospel. Yet some were distorting the true gospel. And the Galatian Christians were, were falling for a distortion of the gospel. What would bring these Christians back to the right gospel, to the correct gospel, to the only true gospel? What would increase their confidence that there is only one true gospel? What would help them uh, hold on to that confidence in the one true gospel? And the answer is in verses 11 and 12, where Paul reminds them this super basic truth. I mean, it's so basic that you wonder, Paul, why do you have to say this? And he is saying this not to non-believers. He is saying this to churches, to Christians. What a basic truth to be reminded of. So that if they are lured and thinking about turning their backs from Christianity, they must know what they're turning away from. They're turning away not from some human-made ideas, but from that which God revealed through Jesus Christ. Friends, the gospel proclaimed by Paul is not man-made. A simple truth, a profound truth. And I wonder if there's here, there are some here this morning who need to hear this afresh. Or perhaps some of you this morning are hearing it for the first time. That the message of the gospel that Christianity proclaims is not a man-made gospel. It's not invented by, by people. 
It's not like people just came together and came up with this so-called good news of salvation. And out of this good news that men made up, Christianity evolved. Well, friends, consider that the message at the heart of the Christian faith is not man-made, but it was revealed to us from God through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you this morning might even wonder this word gospel. Let me look up in the dictionary. What does it mean? I, I, I don't use this word. What is the gospel? Well, friends, at the heart of, of Christianity is this message that sometimes is just labeled the gospel. It's the message about Jesus Christ. It is the message that God's eternal Son, God's only begotten Son, who existed for eternity with God, has taken on human flesh, has become human like you and I, has lived a perfect life. Not one lie, not one act of disobedience, not one act of, of hidden secret sin, has lived a perfect life, and yet he was sentenced to death, crucified on a cross, as if cursed by God. And he did it, not because of his sin. He did that in order to take upon himself the sin of all those who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Of all those who would turn away from their rebellion, from their ignorance of God, and place their trust in Jesus Christ in order to be made right with God. This Jesus Christ, who was crucified, was also raised up from the grave on the third day. God rose him from the dead, proving that his death was a sufficient payment for our rebellion. And this Jesus also ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and now reigns from heaven over his people and over the world, and has commanded us to proclaim the news about him to all the people, so that in his name the forgiveness of sins may be proclaimed, and new life from God may be granted to all those who turn to the Lord. This is the gospel. And if you've never heard it, or if you have heard it before, but have never embraced it and received it and submitted to it, I pray that today would be a day that you would consider this gospel and that you would respond to it by faith. It is only as we respond to this good news, the gospel, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can be made right with God. This is the, the good news, the gospel that the churches in Galatia were supposed to, to hear, to respond to, and to hold on to. But somehow, they got weaned off of this confidence. And this confidence in this gospel, the only true gospel that saves, they began distorting, twisting. You say, how? They began distorting and twisting it by saying they also needed to add the law of Moses, circumcision, and acting upon the law of Moses as a condition to be made right with God. The Apostle Paul says, oh friends, when, when you add or when you distort the gospel, when you turn to a different gospel, it shows that you have lost confidence in the one true gospel. So Paul brings this news to the Galatians and says, you need to get back into gaining confidence about the true gospel. 
If there's someone here this morning who's still on the fence of whether or not you trust and, and it's worth following Jesus, let this help you get off the fence and place your full trust in Christ. The crucified Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of God. The Apostle Paul encountered this Jesus on the road to Damascus, as we have heard earlier in the service, in the, in the passage that was read to us. And, and this Jesus revealed to Paul the gospel. So believe on him so that you may be united with him. For those of us who are already believers, since the truth of the gospel is of divine origins, let this truth flame our zeal for the gospel. For some Christians, the danger is not necessarily that of flirting with compromising the gospel as the Galatians did. Instead, for some Christians, the danger is simply to get bored by this gospel. Getting bored by this gospel. It's like children who love playing with their favorite toys for a long while, but after some, while, some time, they get bored of them. And they come to the parents and say, I'm bored, even though their rooms are full with toys, fun toys. And, and in a similar way, we as Christians can get bored with the gospel and feel like we need something else to spice up our lives. We need something plus the gospel in order to, to make us zealous for the gospel. Well, friends, if that's you this morning, consider the reasons why you can have fresh confidence in the gospel. It was revealed from God through Jesus Christ. And since it's not man's gospel, it doesn't get old like we do. Since it's not man's gospel, it doesn't have an expiration date like so many human things have. Since it's not a human gospel, it doesn't lose its power like we do when we approach retirement. Oh, friends, since this gospel is not man's gospel, it doesn't get old or out of fashion or out of date. Would we have confidence in this gospel? Would we have an ever-fresh zeal in this gospel? Because it's not man's gospel. It is from God through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, we can have ongoing and ever-increasing confidence in this gospel because it's from God. A second reason that the Apostle Paul brings to these churches to help them recover their confidence in the one and only true gospel. The second reason is because the true gospel is able to change a persecutor into a proclaimer. Because the true gospel is able to change a persecutor into a proclaimer. We see this in verses 13 through 16. Paul provides some personal evidence and it's as if he's trying to lay, like a lawyer, a case why the gospel is the only true gospel and they can have confidence in it. And the evidence he brings is his own personal testimony. His personal testimony is not the gospel. Sometimes we often confuse 
that the gospel is our personal testimony. No, the gospel is not our personal testimony. Our personal testimony can be an evidence that the gospel is true, that the gospel works, that the gospel is fruitful. And in Paul's case, this is exactly what he does. He gives evidence from his personal testimony that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only true gospel, is powerful. And the testimony is the following. He starts off with a before and after picture. Before he was saved and after he was saved. And the before he was saved, listen. Listen to what this man was like. Verse 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, if, if, you, were a, if you were a Christian in the first century, and you could think and imagine who would be the, the last person on earth that you expected would ever become a Christian. It would have been this man. Uh, there are some people, even today, who ridicule Christianity. They're not satisfied simply to reject it. They want to go further and actually just make fun of it. Ridicule Christianity and make fun of Christians and people who believe in, in the so-called myths about Jesus. There are people who ridicule Christianity. And it's like, people who ridicule Christianity, what's the likelihood of them becoming Christians? Ah, small. Paul went way beyond being a man who ridiculed the faith. Uh, he... He was an active persecutor. He went out of his way to hurt God's people who believed that Jesus was God's anointed king who brought us salvation exclusively through his sacrifice on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave. Prior to his conversion, the Apostle Paul hated the idea of a crucified Messiah and his persecution of Christians did not simply stop at some basic hurts. He did not simply hurt them with words. Oh, friends, we're, we're reminded in these verses how Paul persecuted the church of God violently. And he tried to destroy it. He doesn't give us the details here how that took place, but from the account in the book of Acts where, where we've heard earlier uh, from our brother Jake, we know that he received authority from the so-called national leaders of Judaism from Jerusalem to imprison men and women and even to kill them, to kill those who would follow Jesus. He was not only a violent persecutor but a fanatic in his zeal for the traditions of his fathers, so much so that he was more advanced than anyone among his peers. Like he was the top of the line, the top of the pyramid, in terms of zeal for the traditions of his fathers and in terms of violence, in terms of persecution against Christianity. And he said it very clearly, he tried to destroy Christianity. 
a violent persecutor of the faith, a fanatic religious follower of his own traditions that he grew up with. Yet, it is this man whom God chose and appointed to become a proclaimer of the very news he was trying to destroy. Could God do it? Could God save such a man? And the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of the before and after, not only of what he did. He gives us a picture of the before and after of what God did. Look at verse 15 through 16. Paul shifts the picture of the before and after to speak not only of himself but of what God has done. And he gives three descriptions of what God has done. Let these three descriptions build confidence in us. Confidence in the one true gospel. Listen to the first description that he has. Paul says about God, but when he who has set me apart before I was born. What this tells us, dear friends, is that God's rescue plan started for Paul not merely when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Notice when did God begin his rescue plan with Paul? When he who set me apart before I was born. Did you catch that? Before God, Paul was ever born, God set him apart. God's plan for Paul's mission as an apostle to the Gentiles was very similar to how God had called the prophet Jeremiah and told Jeremiah that God set him apart to be a prophet to the nations before he was born. At home, read up Jeremiah 1.5. And God set Jeremiah to be a prophet not for the people of Israel, he says, for the nations. This means, and Paul uses that language of Jeremiah here to describe his own apostleship. This means that God's call for Paul to be an apostle for the Gentiles was not based on how Paul lived his earlier life. Paul's past hatred of Christians and of Christianity did not cancel God's plan to save Paul and make him an apostle. God's plans to save Paul were bigger than Paul's hatred and persecutions. God's power to save Paul were bigger than, Paul, than Paul's violence against Christians. Another description that Paul makes of God in, ver in these verses is that God called Paul by his grace. Paul knows that God's call on him was not because of his worthiness, not because of his merits, God's call upon Paul was based on one reason alone. Called by his grace. God's grace. This is humbling to know that our prior life before knowing God neither earns us the right to be with God, nor disqualifies us 
God's grace is stronger than anything we have done prior, so that our prior life neither earns our merit with God, nor disqualifies us from being the recipient of God's grace. The people who think that they have sinned too much in order to be accepted by God, those who think their past is way too dirty, way too, way too deep and dark, way too hopeless. People think that way about their past. It means they still have not understood the grace of God. If God called Paul a persecutor and a destroyer of the church, to become a proclaimer of the gospel, then trust that God's grace is deeper than any past rebellion or hatred that we have exerted in our earlier life. Paul attributes God's call upon him simply to the grace of God, and so should we. Friends, no matter how dark or hopeless our past or present is, God calls us to himself not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, God's call comes by grace. And the last description that Paul gives of God in these verses is that God acted to reveal Jesus to Him when God was so pleased to do so. Look at what he says. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. All it took for God to overcome Paul's hatred, Paul's persecutions, uh, the, the wrong-headed zeal was for God to act on his good pleasure to reveal Paul, uh, Jesus to Paul. Despite all of Paul's former life, despite all his hardness, despite all his opposition to Jesus, despite all his wrong-headed zeal, God, in his, time, uh, in his timing, overcame Paul's hardness simply because of his goodwill, because of his good pleasure. In the history of the church, God has acted in a similar way time and again. Uh, this week, Pastor Russ reminded me of the epitaph that is written on the tombstone of John Newton. Uh, the epitaph was written by John Newton himself before he was dead, of course. Before he died, he has written these words to be, to be engraved on his tombstone. And the words say the following, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. The grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only true gospel, can change a persecutor into a proclaimer. Oh, friends, 
This is the great reason, the second great reason why we have and we should have confidence in this gospel. No human explanation, no human power, no, no strategy of, of humanity can explain how, how, how could someone like Paul or how could someone like, like a John Newton be changed from a hater of Christianity to be a proclaimer. I wonder if your heart and mind is tempted at times to feel hopeless about someone who seems to be too far from the power of God through the gospel. Perhaps a family member whom you have been praying for for a long time. Perhaps a friend, perhaps an acquaintance, or simply a stranger that you doubt would ever be interested to hear and respond to the gospel. I wonder if your prayer life for non-believers reveals confidence in the power of God to change people through the gospel. Here's why we should also pray for government officials or for opponents of the Christian faith, that the true gospel is able to change the hardest of opponents. I wonder what your personal evangelism patterns reveal about your confidence in the only true gospel. So why should we have confidence in the only true gospel? Because the true gospel is from God. Because the true gospel is able to change a persecutor into a proclaimer. And lastly, a further reason, last reason, why we should have confidence in the gospel is because the true gospel is not dependent on human tradition. True gospel is not dependent on human tradition nor on human authority. Now, we see this point in verses 16 through 24. When the Apostle Paul was commissioned, and here we see that he's not just saved, but he's also commissioned as well. When he was commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he tells us he did not consult with anyone. That's how verse 16 ends. I wonder if you saw that. He did not consult with anyone. And, and this verse and the remaining verses could easily be misapplied, and especially in our overly individualistic society, uh, could be understood as if I can just live my life on my own and not consult with anyone. Uh, friends, let me just say, if you are tempted to, to take these words in that direction, you are totally missing and misapplying and abusing what this is about. We must understand what is the context. Why is Paul saying this? Why did he act in this way? Uh, and why is he bringing up this point to the churches of Galatia? We must understand what was going on in the churches of Galatia and with Paul. There was a conspiracy theory. Now, these days, conspiracy theories are pretty common about all kinds of things. About po politics, about the vaccine, about masks, about everything. There was a conspiracy theory, and people were debating, and even today, were debating what is, who knows what is really true. Well, in the first century, there was this conspiracy theory. It wasn't about politics, it wasn't about the vaccine, it wasn't about the masks. There was a conspiracy theory about the gospel and about Paul. And the conspiracy theory that was mushrooming around uh, was really questioning and accusing Paul that he was a second-rate or a second-hand apostle, that he was not of the same caliber as the Jerusalem apostles who saw the living Jesus directly, and they got the gospel from Jesus himself, not through mediated 
authority. So this conspiracy theory against Paul that was mushrooming was that he was a second-hand apostle, second-rate apostle, and therefore the gospel that he proclaims is not truly all that good. We need to go back to the true sources, to those who got the gospel from Jesus directly, the Jerusalem apostles. That's a conspiracy theory that was going around, uh, particularly from the Judaizers. So because of that, because of that crisis uh, of, that, of those conspiracies in Galatia, in this text, the Apostle Paul is seeking to demonstrate that he received the gospel and his apostleship directly from God, as revealed from Jesus Christ himself. And that his apostleship and the gospel he received was not mediated through other human beings so that people would understand that his apostleship has equal value and worth to the other 12 apostles that have known Jesus while he was on earth. Now, none of us are in Paul's situation. None of us should pretend like we are like Paul. We should never think that what was going on with Paul is what should ex we should expect to be going on with us. This is why we should understand what Paul is saying here, I did not consult with anyone, is simply to bolster up and give confidence and reasons why his apostleship and his gospel should be given the same value as the gospel of the Jerusalem apostles. Do you understand that? Therefore, in this passage, the point we must learn is not, oh, I can go around in my spiritual life and not consult with anyone. Look, Paul did it. Why can't I? And that is a wrong, wrong, wrong application. The reason why we must understand from this passage is Paul is telling us his authority and his message is not based on human tradition. It's not based on human authority. He received it from God directly, and therefore we should receive his gospel as the very words of God. In verse 17, he gives us sort of a diary of the big points of his early years. He says in verse 17 that he, when he first got saved and began preaching the gospel, he did not consult with the Jerusalem apostles right away. He did not go to them to get the gospel from them. Instead, he went into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then in verse 18 through 24, Paul speaks about a trip he did eventually take to Jerusalem. Three years later, after his conversion, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with Peter. But what he emphasizes in this journey is not that simply he met with Peter, but that he was there only for 15 days. And that he did not meet with the whole clan of all the apostles. He only met with Peter and with one other apostle. The whole point is to bring to emphasis the, the minimal contact he had with the Jerusalem apostles. And then in verse 20, he says, he confirms the truthfulness of these facts by saying, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. This seems weird. Why would he have to say that? Again, because he's trying to correct the facts and get the record straight against the conspiracy theories that were running around against Paul. Paul is trying to help these Galatians to get the facts straight. That his exposure to other human leaders was minimal at first. 
And Paul concludes this chapter by saying that while he began preaching in various churches and various regions shortly after his conversion, he did not go to the churches of Judea, those whom he formerly persecuted. In the beginning, the Judean churches only heard about Paul's conversion. And Paul reports to this, in this letter, reports their response in verse 23 and 24. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. In other words, the Judean churches realized that only God can be credited with such a change in Paul's life. And they responded with praise to God. So when Paul's apostleship and message were being questioned and the conspiracy theories were running around to discredit Paul and his gospel, we understand why he makes such a big deal of telling us that human sources did not contribute to his gospel message. And we understand why Paul brings in the testimony of the Judean churches, the very churches that he was trying to persecute. He says, listen to what they are saying now. They get it, and they see that it's a grace of God who has changed me. It's a grace of God who has given me a message to proclaim to you. They are praising God. You are believing the conspiracy theories. You're going after other gospels. You are turning away. He's bringing in evidence. The evidence of not only of his own conversion, but evidence of the very churches that he tried to persecute. And says, listen, they're getting it. They see the evidence of God's grace in my life. I am a legitimate apostle. I have a legitimate gospel. They were praising God for what God was doing through me and in me. What about you? Our oh, friends, for us, this should mean that when we hear God's word taught faithfully, as the apostles have revealed it to us from Jesus Christ, that we too should respond with praise to God. We should respond in, in confidence that the God who, who was persecuted through Paul, that, the, that Jesus Christ who was being pursued by Paul in order to be destroyed, that that Jesus is able to turn sinners to himself and to entrust them with a message of rec reconciliation. Friends, the message that we have received from the apostles is the message from God himself. And therefore, when we hear it proclaimed faithfully as they have taught it to us, we should praise God. We should, we should explode in glorifying God in the history of the church. Both the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church have claimed and taught that the tradition of the church has become of equal authority with the teaching of the Bible. This is one of the big differences. Why the Reformation had to take place in the 1500s. Because... It is a departure from the truth. It is a departure from the truth of the gospel to claim 
that the history and the tradition of the church and of its councils has equal authority to the gospel and to the Bible. So one of the big differences between Protestants and Roman Catholic folk and Eastern Orthodox folk is this one huge, among others, but one huge conviction that the Bible, God's revelation of himself to us, has unique and exclusive authority even over the tradition of the church. So we as Protestant Christians, we want to place our confidence that even our creed, even our own statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message stands under the authority of the Bible, not equal to the Bible. Any statement we make stands under the authority of God's word. But the point is for us to recognize and for us to praise God that God is able to reveal himself and he has revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ and our only authority and the only power that exists is in Christ alone and in the word that he has revealed to us through his apostles. Friends, the gospel that proclaims salvation by faith alone in Christ alone is the only true gospel because it is not based on human tradition nor on human authority, but on the revelation of God as granted to his apostles. Friends, we must protect this confidence. And we must flame in our hearts this confidence in the only true gospel. For those of us who lack confidence, perhaps because you're not yet a Christian, or perhaps because you have been lured by all sorts of conspiracy theories about the gospel, about Christianity, I pray that the Holy Spirit would create in your heart this confidence that the message of the gospel is the only true gospel because it's from God, because it can turn a persecutor into a proclaimer, and because it's not based on human tradition or authority. I pray that, that it would get you off the fence to respond to this gospel. For those of us who are believers and we hold on to this confidence, I pray that we would not get bored with it. I pray that we would be flamed into greater zeal, greater enthusiasm, and that this confidence would be seen in our prayers for the lost. That this confidence would be seen in our prayers for those who seem very far off. This confidence would be seen in our willingness to develop personal relationships with the lost in our circle of influence and even with strangers so we could share the gospel with them. That this confidence would be seen in the way we evangelize, not to give in to gimmicks of emotional manipulation or human strategies for simply getting decisions, but that we would rely on the power of God to transform hearts through the simple presentation of God's truth. Oh, friends, just like the Apostle Paul tried to bolster up and, and, and recover the confidence in the gospel for the Christians in Galatia, I pray that we would be recovering and bolstering and flaming the confidence in the gospel among us so that as a congregation, we would be a people who show that confidence in our prayers, in our evangelism, in our faithfulness, that we would be so faithful to seek to help others as well to grow in that confidence. Brothers and sisters, let's grow in confidence in the one and true gospel. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ. We praise you that because of him and because of what he has done for us on the cross and because of what you have done with him in raising him from the dead, our only sufficient reasons for existence as a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our only hope for a faithful and fruitful message is if we have confidence in this gospel. Father, we want to praise you. We want to glorify you for your power because it does not rest in our effort. It does not rest in our decisions. It does not rest in our strategies, but in you alone. Father, we pray that as we seek to praise you, that, Lord, that you would continue to build this confidence in us so that our lives would be characterized by, by the same kind of praising that the Judean Christians had to know that you are the kind of God who's able to save even the worst of sinners. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.